we've got an issuer that says, hey, Alvin, you want to build 200 units in 10 buck two. How much is it going to cost? Oh, 50 million. Okay, here's $50 million worth of bonds. They'll give us the bonds just like that. They believe that the market will dictate whether we sell the bonds or not, which is true. If nobody buys them, then the deal doesn't get built. But we take that bond. And now if we have the ability to raise $50 million ourselves, we can raise the 50 million. We can construct this apartment complex two years. We can pay our investors up to 10%. Uh, so check sizes typically uh, 50 to 100, 100 to 250, 250 and up. But we can pay up to 10% interest on that money for as long as we hold it and then sell the bonds after the property stabilizes. The investors get 100% of their money back and none of the interest that they made for two years, three years, do they pay taxes on it? None of it. That's amazing. So that literally, if you're on a 50% tax bracket, and you put up a million dollars and you're making 10% interest on it, that could equate to almost a 40% gain on your money because you're not paying any taxes. And it's insured. So now let me tell you how this is really, really so, so safe for the investor. I'm talking about raising 50 million, 200 million, because really we could do this 50 million at a time. We've got bonds already issued for the deal before we spend the money. The bonds are at our placement agent to sell before we start on this project we will close on this on this transaction they will sell only a small fraction of the bonds just enough to cover the debt service for two years stack all of our reserve accounts and everything that need to be and that's it the other 48 million or whatever 40 million whatever that number is we just hold the paper so technically, our investors are the bondholders, and all of their gains are exempt from taxes. When the property is completed, we've got a, a max price guarantee from a contractor that has a performance bond. So that, in essence, means that we've got 100% assurance of having a project. I mean, that was just one of the gems that Alvin dropped throughout the entire show nonstop. So I hope you guys are excited for this conversation with Alvin Hope Johnson, because this is probably one that you want to listen to maybe three to five times just to make sure you can grasp all the concepts and strategies that Alvin was able to share with our audience today. Now, our ask is simple. Please follow at Alvin Hope Johnson on Instagram to thank him for sharing so much information with us. And don't forget to check out his website on www.hopehousingfoundation.org. If you thought about any other questions that you would like to ask Alvin when we bring him back on so that he can talk about his active deals, please don't forget to put your questions in the comment section on youtube.com slash at Kent underscore he. Let's get the show started. Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we are so honored to welcome Alvin Hope Johnson, uh, who is the president of the Hope Housing Foundation. If you didn't know, Hope Housing Foundation is headquartered in McKinney, Texas. They were incorporated as a 501c3 uh, in 1998, and they have a business model that positions themselves as one of the country's most effective nonprofit affordable workforce housing organizations in the United States. So now with over 1,300 affordable housing 
uh, units and growing to foundations, building like another 1,000 units in 2023 between four new multifamily housing developments uh, for the workforce community in North Texas and Wisconsin. So I know that you they have resources from Institutional Community of Lending, and they're actually on target to develop an astounding 20,000 units of high-performance near net zero, eco-friendly and sustainable workforce housing in about five years. Like that is insane, but man, it is such an honor. Uh, with my guest co-host, Andrea Garcia today, Alvin, welcome to the show, man. Like what you're doing is incredible. And we just want to first take the moment <laughs> to thank you for what you do every day, because without people like you, I would, I personally would have never had the, the, the privilege of being where I am today. So thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and just how you got into multifamily and affordable housing, man. Thanks, Kent. Andrea, good to see you as well. Um, man, it's, it's, it's so funny. But let me say about myself, I'm 58 years old now. I am um, president of Hope Housing Foundation. I've been here since 2011, so about 12 years. Prior to this, I worked, well, I volunteered for a guy that had 16,000 units of apartments. And when he died 13 months after me meeting him, I became the president of his organization and walked that thing through a bankruptcy. So my, I'm kind of going back from where I am. Prior to that, I was in the mortgage business. So from 2008 back to 1996, prior to that, I had done a lot of rehabs and a lot of stuff like that. So uh, I'm just a regular guy. Hang on one second. Oh, um, I'm just a regular guy. And, uh, no college man. You know, one of my friends, Ken, asked me a, a while back, the first time I got introduced to the need for housing, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to answer that. So he literally grilled me back my whole life, back to the point where my mom and I, when I was 11 years old, my dad beat the crap out of my mom and walked out on us, sold their house from under them, sold our house from under my mom, we didn't know about it until two weeks before we had to leave. My dad walks in the house one day when they were going through their divorce and said, you guys got to get out. The house is sold and you got two weeks. My mom was a school teacher. She was probably making about $16,000 a year back then. And, um, you know, I was 11 years old. I didn't know what she was going through. But I remember her frantically having to look for a place to live. And in two weeks, we found this little bitty house and, she was so proud she moved in. She bought her little car and her house. And, you know, um, maybe that's when the need for housing uh, hit me. Not really sure. You know, the universe, God, whatever we believe in has a way of bringing it all back. And then, um, but I'll tell you, Ken, one of the most amazing things that has happened to me happened about a month ago. After being in the mortgage business since 96 through 2008, so almost 20 years of doing that, I have been uh, in this space, in this seat, at this in this office for 12 years. You know, I ran at other foundation after it went, uh, after the founder died. And I really had a problem with a, the stigma associated with affordable housing because I really wanted to do something great. I really wanted our organization. I've always said that this thing can be bigger than Habitat for Humanity because we have that kind of heart. We we provide a, a, a necessary place for people and nobody just knows what it is. But what happened to me last month, I was talking to this lady 
she's pretty affluent today. And mm -hmm. uh, she was telling me about this neighborhood in Frisco, Texas called Stonebriar. The houses over there are about, I think the smallest one in the neighborhood is probably four or 5,000 feet. They probably start at seven, 800,000 and go up to five or 6 million. I mean, you got some 20,000 square foot houses in there. Directly across the street from that sits an apartment complex that this lady said those people live in. And I said, hold on, tell me about those people. Well, she tried to get past that. And I said, no, no, no. Tell me about those people. I need to hear about those people. Well, you know, those people, they, 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 they have lower income and they probably, some of them probably even have section eight vouchers. And, and I said, well, let me tell you about the work I do. I said, we provide affordable housing and affordable housing means that we serve a population of people that make between 120% of the area median income and 30% of the area median income. But our target is 80 to 60% mm -hmm. of the area median income. So that means in Frisco, Texas, where the area median income is 125,000, we are serving a population of people that make between 65 and $100,000. Mm -hmm. And this lady broke down crying. And I was really passionate about the way I said it. I was not talking this nice, but I was passionate. And she started crying. I said, lady, I'm sorry I mean to hurt your feelings. She said, you didn't hurt my feelings. I said, why are you crying? She said, well, four years ago, I went through a divorce and I got kicked out of our $4 million house by my ex-husband. The only place, now here's the lady, $4 million house, big Mercedes, nice Louis Vuitton bags and all this garbage. She said she and her daughter didn't have a place to live, so they had to live in an extended stay for a couple of months until a place became open because she didn't want to move out of the Frisco School District for her daughter to finish mm -hmm. school. She really broke down crying more and more and more and then began to tell me that right next to those apartments was a townhome community. And that townhome community was a place that they allowed her to move into. And the only reason they allowed her to live there was because she did not make over more than $80,000. I said, oh, so you were one of those people. And she said, I never saw it that way. I was one of those people. That community gave me a place for my daughter to finish school where she started gave me an opportunity to stay in the community where I had lived, gave me an opportunity for me to get back on my feet, and, and now here I am. But I had no idea that those people was me. Wow. That is incredible, man. So and I, and I, I understand the stigma associated with 80% of the area median income in a neighborhood where the area median income is 30,000 or 20,000. And you do have populations across America where the area median income is 25,000. And if you're setting up housing for people that make 80% of that, those people make $20,000 a year. That is associated with housing vouchers and, and things like that to fill the gap for the rent because those residents need a place to live and nobody can afford to stay anywhere for two or $300 a month. So that's what the Section 8 system is for, to bridge that gap between the $1,000 rent and the 30% of the income that that person can pay. So if the person makes $20,000, the rule of thumb is that we spend 30% of our income on housing. 
So that means that that twenty thousand mm -hmm. dollar person can't spend more than six thousand dollars per year on rent. That's five hundred bucks a month. How do they pay the extra thousand dollars because their rent is fifteen hundred? A Section Eight voucher makes up that difference. Wow, Alvin, and I think that's such a great story to share with the audience. And it's like this misconception that there's just only certain type of people that are on Section 8 vouchers or using affordable housing programs. It's kind of like the story I tell with people is like, I used to be an EMT answering mm -hmm. 911 calls. I started at $12 an hour, right. $12 an hour. Right. Who's going to answer 911 calls next time COVID hits for 12 bucks an hour? <laughs> Ain't nobody going to answer 911 calls for 12 bucks an hour. But even and if I you think, did, where would you live? In I'm Los not Angeles. where I'm living right now, Right. <laughs> That is crazy. And it's insane that if we want these good people, whether you care about workforce, whether you care about first responders, social workers, school teachers, people, right? And school teachers, the people, the people that you on the need. city council that have to approve this stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. In a city council meeting, you're wanting to deny this, but you qualify to live here. But the room blew up. <laughs> that is insane. So I think, you know, with affordable housing, we're able to help so many people and even the people that helps other people too. People forget yeah. about that. Like some of the most important folks in the world, they make very little money, but they, they stay in those professions out of the kindness of their heart. Like, do you have any other stories of, you know, people that you guys have helped with affordable housing that you can share with us? Like any top memorable stories of families that you've been able to house? Uh, I'll tell you one more story and then another story. All uh, right, love it. About a month. Two months ago, we were doing a a deal in the deal we're doing in Wisconsin. We had to get it approved, a TEFRA hearing approved. And um, one of the city planners was really adamant about not approving this. One of the ladies on the planning and zoning said, I just started making $60,000 a year. I have not always made this kind of money. This is the kind of development that needs to be approved. So this area... Area median income is 100000 So our target avatar client will mm -hmm. be make somewhere between sixty dollars and $80,000. Um, the, the city has about, I don't know, 15,000 people in it right outside of Green Bay. And a lady on the PNZ said, I just started making this. I could live there because even though she didn't make the sixty. We don't deny tenancy if there was a housing voucher associated with mm -hmm. that that she was qualified for, then guess what? She can move into that place. And she stood up and almost stood on her desk and said, this thing needs to be approved because there are more people that need it than not. Than not. And the city council approved it because of that lady that was on the planning and zoning commission um, in part. But she was so adamant about it that it had never been front and center for anybody mm. in that room before. You know, it's usually those people, but now it's one of us. And so that made a big difference for them. And then I'll tell you the biggest um, enjoyment I think I've had in doing this work is, you know, we've got a community here in Dallas mm -hmm. that is about two miles from the Cotton Bowl. So that's South Dallas, it's straight hood. Um, this thing was built in 2000. Uh, and you'll turn a corner after looking at all this blight and go, whoa, where did this thing come from? Really good looking community. Mm. And so when 
I think when we first bought this and, you know, I was, I'm very visible on our properties, especially the ones that I'm close to. Uh, I was there one day when this lady got to move in and I, I walked with the leasing agent and this resident and her two daughters to their apartment. I had never done that. And uh, the lady said, uh, they asked her, hey, do you have anything to move in? And she said, no, I don't have anything yet. It's just me and my daughters. And I got a few things in, a, in my car that I'll bring in later. So anyway, she went to her apartment. And when this lady walked in and opened the door and saw this apartment that had been totally redone, uh, which that's the standard, right? But she walked in and three-bedroom apartment, her two kids, two or three kids. I can't even remember. It's been a minute. But I remember the look on that lady's face almost as if she did not deserve to be in a place that looked that nice. And that, for me, let me know that I was doing the right thing, that I was in the right space. So um, having somebody that literally didn't have anything except the clothes on their back and a few things in the car to walk into an apartment that she got to call home uh, to a place that looked like she had never seen anything that nice let me know that we were doing the right thing. I don't care what neighborhood it's in, uh, all of our units look like that. And I was super, super proud of that moment. So that's why we do it, man. It's it's. Um, it's a great, great feeling. It's it is, oh, it's amazing, feeling. right, Andrea? Andrea, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah. yeah. Nothing really beats that feeling, right? Really? When you give back and it, not only in the way that you do it as a nonprofit, but also just in how you treat people on every level, right? Like the investors plus the tenants, the property managers. I mean, it's all about the relationships. Is that, yeah. did you feel as if those stories that you, you just mentioned, is that the reason why you started investing in multifamily affordable housing because of the change no. that you could see happen? Or is it just, oh, why, why did you start the foundation? <laughs> I'd well, like to know this. <laughs> Uh, honestly, uh, after I had volunteered for my friend that had 16,000 units, when I met this guy, he said he wanted to help me. And uh, I met him in 2007. He was a mutual friend of an appraiser of mine and I. And uh, I drove him from Houston to Dallas to meet him. He flew in um, from Amarillo to Dallas to meet me. I didn't know he had come in on his private plane. This guy walked into the room and sucked the air out of the room. I mean, he was so good looking. He was such a great man, so well put together that I knew I needed to be with him. And so he told me, we sat there and talked for a couple of hours. I had started my nonprofit prior to that. Um, and the reason I had started that was to do this HUD housing program where you could buy the their foreclosures for a dollar. Any HUD house that was on the market for over six months, a nonprofit could partner with the local government to get it for a dollar and repurpose that. He said, Alvin, that's a lot of work. It's great work, but let me show you what a real nonprofit can do. And I'm like, what do you mean a real nonprofit? You know, I got real offensive to, offended to that. Um, he told me my work was cute. <laughs> well, anyway, he, he told me he would help me. And for three weeks, he would answer my calls and, and give me assignments to do. And, and I probably wasn't meeting up to his standard. And he quit answering my call. After three weeks. Well, guess what? I kept calling every week for a year. 49 weeks later, I kept calling. And he answered the phone in February 2008 and said, Alvin Johnson, I'm tired of you calling me. I said, oh, man, you know it was me. I'm so glad you know it was me. He said, yeah, I know it was you. You're the most tenacious person I know. 
Uh, there's been nobody that has told me they wanted it and showed me more than you. So if you want to know what we do, come up here. I'll put you up for 30 days. And, uh, and then after those 30 days, maybe we can figure out how I can help you. So I've got the biggest suitcase I could find and moved to Amarillo, Texas. That 30-day stint turned into 13 months. My friend died in a car wreck, and I became the president of his organization that has 16,000 units. Today would be worth over $2 billion. And I sat there for a year and a half, almost two years, and wrote bankruptcy plans with my team of five women. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't buy into our plan because I figured, who is this guy? He doesn't know what he's talking about. They got rid of those assets for pennies on the dollar. And uh, at that point um, is when this company was another organization. And um, the board members came to me and said, Alvin, if anybody can do anything with this company, you can have it. We're done. So they helped me put a board in place. So the board hired me to run Hope Housing Foundation. And so that was January. Yeah, that was like 12 years ago now. And uh, we thought we'd go buy some apartments. I didn't have no money, no credit, no experience. I needed affordable housing at that time. And uh, I said, well, I've always done real estate. I've always taken a piece of trash and turned it into a treasure. So let's start with some of these low-lying assets. And we got our first deal was 110 units that came out of that previous portfolio where I managed. I was able to get the limited partners to give us the 0.01% interest. We own 0.01% of that deal, like almost nothing but it was a controlling GP interest. And so we hired a management company and we started our management company and started managing that property. The rents were 390 bucks a month on 110 units. We were not killing it. Um, I was making no money. Um, and then one of the ladies that well, our VP now um, came to work with me and we, we took the management fee of 500 bucks a month and that's how we paid ourselves. And, um, and we walked it out and here we are today. Uh, on the brink of building about a thousand brand new units this year, uh, 20,000 units over the next five years. And uh, we're going to put a lot of people in housing. We're going to give a lot of tremendous careers because not only in building these apartments, uh, we're doing them the sustainable way near net zero with structural insulated panels. Our goal is to own our own structural insulated panel plant, our own trust plant, so that we can literally build our own stuff and then house our own people and continue to just push this mission forward. And I got really a great way for investors to participate, but we'll get to that. I mean, I definitely wanted to get to that one sticking point about how people work with you because we're not only doing a podcast for affordable housing. I think it's really important for people to understand the benefit of working with a nonprofit because not only that 0.01% that you just mentioned is super important, but also it's the tax benefits of it. I mean, that's what we do. We partner with nonprofits. You know, we don't have to pay the property taxes, but then there's a way for people to work with you guys and also create better relationships. I mean, I I think it's incredible what you're doing. <laughs> do you feel like you find it rewarding? You find it, like just getting into that structure with any kind of, um, it, it could be a multifamily investor, but they have to be focused on affordable housing, right? To work with you? Well, uh, they don't have to have any focus. Um, what I mean <laughs> by that, <laughs> if they just want to make money, um, this, you know, we've been doing this, I've been in this seat 12 years, and I literally, a month ago, when all of this happened, I mean, it's been a, a tsunami of change that has come about. 
But what I realized is that, you know, we had a deal financed last year with tax exempt bonds where we got really high leverage and it works really well for us. And then I realized that there are organizations that buy tax exempt bonds. Why? Because they don't pay gain, no taxes on their gain. So that means that they buy a hundred thousand dollar mortgage and over 35 years, it turns into 300,000. They pay no taxes on that $200,000 gain for 30 years at all. So with us financing our deals with tax exempt bonds now, we literally have put together a debt fund with Nick last, I got the paperwork last week. The first one's a small $10 million raise. But what happens is that money goes directly into this this affordable housing deal that is financed with tax exempt bonds. So we've got, an, let me back up. We've got an issuer that says, hey, Alvin, you want to build 200 units and 10 buck two. How much is it going to cost? Oh, 50 million. Okay, here's $50 million worth of bonds. They'll give us the bonds just like that. They believe that the market will dictate whether we sell the bonds or not, which is true. If nobody buys them, then the deal doesn't get built. But we take that bond and now if we have the ability to raise $50 million ourselves, we can raise the 50 million. We can construct this apartment complex two years. We can pay our investors up to 10%. Uh, so check sizes typically uh, 50 to 100, 100 to 250, 250 and up. But we can pay up to 10% interest on that money for as long as we hold it and then sell the bonds after the property stabilizes, the investors get 100% of their money back and none of the interest that they've made for two years, three years, do they pay taxes on it? None of it. That's amazing. So that literally, if you're on a 50% tax bracket and you put up a million dollars and you're making 10% interest on it, that could equate to almost a 40% gain on your money because you're not paying any taxes. And it's insured. So now let me tell you how this is really, really so, so safe for the investor. I'm talking about raising 50 million, 200 million, because really we could do this 50 million at a time. We've got bonds already issued for the deal before we spend the money. The bonds are at our placement agent to sell. Before we start on this project, we will close on this, on this transaction. They will sell only a small fraction of the bonds, just enough to cover the debt service for two years, stack all of our reserve accounts and everything that need to be, and that's it. The other 48 million or whatever, 40 million, whatever that number is, we just hold the paper. So technically our investors are the bondholders and all of their gains are exempt from taxes. When the property is completed, we've got a, a max price guarantee from a contractor that has a performance bond. So that, in essence, means that we've got 100% assurance of having a project or another contractor that they would hire would complete the job. So a performance bond is just that. It is guaranteeing the performance of the contractor that we hired to deliver that. So we know that with that performance bond, that if I say, I'm gonna get this $50 million and we're gonna go build these apartments and you say, well, how I know the apartments are gonna be built, that apartment, that performance bond guarantees us that. The tax exempt bonds that we that I talked about, 
that is a finance mechanism used by nonprofits, governments, cities to bring about things that are for public good. So um, the reason it's tax exempt is because it is a, a, a public good. It's a public benefit deal that we're doing. So you wonder how your stadiums and and uh, your SoFi stadiums all across the country and your AT&T stadiums get built. Those things are financed with tax exempt bonds. They are for the common good. Uh, there's no recourse, meaning that there's no liability on behalf of the city, on behalf of the government, on behalf of the sponsor or anybody. There's no recourse. I mean, you don't you will not have to pay this money back if the deal doesn't work. Um, that's why it's so heavily underwritten, because there's no warm body, personal credit, business credit to stand behind it. It's solely on the on the project itself. So these bond issuers will give you the bonds all day, but they fully expect that the placement agent will help us do the underwriting of the project so that when those projects are presented to potential bond buyers, that those bond buyers have the wherewithal, first of all, to spend that kind of money. And secondly, that they have the ability to, to dig into our numbers and make sure that what we've, we've presented is, is as accurate as possible. So those bonds are really just a way of acquiring a mortgage. Um, here's a piece of paper. You go sell it. When that money is derived from selling that paper, now you've got the money to build your project. And that's essentially how those bonds work. Yeah, that's super important to understand for people that the tax exempt bonds is another form of capital to be able to finance the deal. And I just wanted to touch back on raising capital. There's capital that you see not only from the tax exempt bonds, but also from the investors. So how are you guys going about raising money for these kinds of deals? Do you usually do that after the LOI with the capital calls? Or is that something that you guys just continually do through social media? What, what, how are you guys doing with the raising capital side? Well, what we had done uh, prior to last week really was just a lot through Clubhouse, a lot through our social media, uh, our website, marketing that way, uh, specific projects. And it was always project specific. We don't do a blind pool or any of that um, until now, because now, you know, before I, this, this was my issue. Uh, with the stigma associated with affordable housing, we've got a deal in Princeton, Texas, right outside of McKinney, a really nice area. Did not know if I could go into the city and tell them, hey, I want to do some affordable housing here uh, because the area median income there is 80000 I mean, so it's a great deal. And we were constructing this, going to do it as a, as a nonprofit deal, but there's a term called naturally occurring affordable housing. The, the, the acronym is NOAA. And that naturally occurring affordable housing basically gives us the ability to have affordable housing without the technical set aside of units. So what I mean by that is, in those deals with the bonds, 50% of those units have to be set aside for people that make 80% of the area median income. So set aside, if we have 100 units, 50% of them, 50 of them have to be held or rented to people that only make 80% of the area median income or less. With the naturally occurring affordable housing, our target market is that same client. We just don't have any set-asides. And so 
in the markets that we were building or that we are building, we already know that it's going to be naturally occurring affordable housing because we know that the market there is a $80,000 AMI, area median income. So we already know that in order to have two and a half times the rent of $1,500 a month, that that person needs to make at least $4,000 a month, puts them in a $45,000 income bracket. And chances are if they're making more than $70,000 a year, they may not want to be there anyway because they could go buy a house right around the corner. So we've got naturally occurring affordable housing hitting the target of the of our ideal client anyway without even telling them that they're one of those people. So now, instead of doing that without them knowing they're one of those people, we would rather just tell everybody, you get to be one of those people. And because of that, this is the benefit that everybody associated with this development gets. Big difference. Wow. That, that is incredible because, man, you have just dropped so many gems already, Alvin. And it, it's, it's incredible, like the knowledge that you've amassed over so many years. And I think now, this be careful gives... with that so many years, Ken. <laughs> you and I are going to have, we, we're going to have great dinner conversations, Alvin. You know what I'm saying? Like, Kent and I are trying not to fight over your your questions because we want to just keep asking you all these questions. But I think Kent was going to ask you a really great question. <laughs> yeah, and like so, I think just to kind of back up a little bit, you talked about performance bonds. You talked about tax exempt bonds, and I think using that, you've already proven to investors how safe the investments can be. Not there's no guarantees, right? Absolutely, right. Right. but how safe it can be. Now, how do investors actually earn a return on the investments, right? Because we talked about taxes and bonds. Are they getting quarterly distributions like regular multifamily projects? Do they have to wait until you transfer ownership to a nonprofit? Because you mentioned like sometimes there's development, sometimes you're acquiring properties and, and renovating them and doing the value add and stabilizing them first. Like at what point can expect investors expect to get back money? Is it quarterly? And then do they get a, a return on the investment or all their money back? upon like a refinance was typical in multifamily or upon like a transfer of ownership to a nonprofit. Can you give us a little bit more details there? I can. So we've got a couple of ways we're doing these. Uh, for the guys that want to really help us, we've got some pre-development things going on. So we've got four deals right now that are being um, in the process of entitlements being done, going, getting engineering done. Let me see, Anna, Texas, that deal's already been through P&Z. Uh, our engineering is being done so that by the end of February, yeah, end of Feb February 6th actually goes to um, PNZ again, and then city council to 26 for a final plat approval. So we've got that going on, and we're spending three, four hundred thousand dollars doing that engineering and paying debt service on the land while we go through that process for about a year. So we've got opportunities for investors that want to partner with us on the pre dev side like that. Uh, where we pay them interest on their money every month. And then when this deal is fully baked and ready to be done, at that, it's, at that point, when we go to permanent financing, their money is re recapped and given back to them. And then if we need equity for that deal or if we're raising equity for that deal, they've gotten their money back. If they want to stay in for the long term, they can. Or sometimes that we've got investors that only want to do the short term stuff because it could be six months to a year and they can make, eight to 10% on their money. And we give them collateral assignments and stuff like that for their, for their um, interest. And so 
that's one way that they can make their money on the pre-dev. Pre-development is pre-dev. And there's a lot of room there because <clears throat> this deal in Anna, we bought 12 acres, I think, uh, for uh, about 5 million bucks. 20,000 a key is about how it was set up for. We thought we were going to get 250 units on it. Well, I, I paid a little pricey for that because it's Anna. But once it's fully entitled and fully baked, it'll be worth about eight million bucks. So there's there's an uptick in value there. Um, I could have probably bought it for or another piece of dirt for three million, um, five ten bucks a foot, five to ten bucks a foot, and then go through the entitlement process, and then we're gonna double the value there. So when we go from a two million dollar purchase, spend a half million dollars on entitlements and stuff, we got three million dollars all in. Now this deal's worth six million dollars because it's good enough for three hundred units. So when I take that money out with the permanent finance, and I'm able to pay my investors back that helped me with the pre-dev, and pay interest on their money, and then when it goes to a fully baked deal like the one in Wisconsin now, ten million dollars in bonds. When we close, these investors will receive a distribution payment every uh, biannually, so twice a year, semi-annually, no, biannually, twice a year. Um, until the property is stabilized. So they'll probably receive four payments, one every six months. It'll be stabilized by two years. Uh, we've got an 18-month or so construction timeline. But what we will probably do instead of getting out in two years is just let it go minimum of three years. And in three years, we'll go sell the rest of the bonds, recap all of their money. And that way, they've been in this deal for three years, making anywhere from 8 to 10% interest on their money. And I think that's very important for people to understand what you mentioned earlier, PNC, that's an equity investor that we've worked with in the past. So is were you working with them as bridge equity? In the oh, market? oh, and I'm sorry. I When I said that, I wasn't talking about the lender. I was talking about PNC, uh, the Planning and Zoning Commission for that particular city. Got you. So when we bought that dirt, here's our concept of 200 units. We got to have engineers and architects draw it all out, give us a site plan that would be as close to realistic as possible. We present that to the Planning and Zoning Commission to change it from agricultural or from whatever zoning it was prior to maybe low density housing to high density multifamily housing. We've got to go through that process and show what the community is going to look like, what services it's going to provide. And so from going from a piece of dirt that was just entitled as agriculture, nobody's ever going to do anything with it to multifamily. We spent a lot of money getting it ready, but it literally changes the value by sometimes 100 to 200%. Yeah, it's incredible. Just yeah. so many benefits to it. I mean, what would you say to anybody who wants to park their money into affordable housing? What are the benefits of working with a nonprofit that specializes in this multi, these multifamily affordable housing investments? Well, I can tell you, Andrew, most people, most of the investors that I've had the opportunity to work with have gotten to a place where, yeah, they still want to make money with their money, but it's more about the feel-good component. And so we blast the fact that we get to feel good while doing good, or we do good while doing good. So we're doing a whole lot of good while doing a whole lot of good. And uh, I think that's the biggest component that we get out of doing this. Like I mentioned, when I walked in that unit and that lady and her girls were crying because, oh, my God, I, they just couldn't believe that they deserved that. Well, when you got a group of investors that have put together $100 million and they're going to go build a couple of apartment complexes that will house those people, 
but they get to make all of their money exempt from income tax. Don't you think that's a real good feeling on both sides? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely win-win on pretty much every side. Yeah. It's just it's the burden is mostly on you and your team. I definitely want to understand, like, how long it takes to build a team that you trust and mm -hmm. to be able to implement on the underwriting and the development, the zoning. There's just so many steps that come after the acquisition of a property, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that, hey, man, we can buy this thing and we'll be building in three months. And mo most of these things, well, all of these things have taken a year. But now that I know that it takes a year, I'm not disappointed. If I had known it would take a year, a year and a half ago, <laughs> I don't know that I could have. I don't know that I would have wanted to do this. Right. I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal to think to myself how am i going to pay for all of this for a year and a half i just i really don't know but the 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 one thing about this and everything that we do and i believe this correlates to everything in life once you make a commitment it doesn't matter you're gonna do it you ever been backed into a corner that you thought man if i don't get out of this i'm just i'm not gonna make it guess what you were committed to getting out and you made it so without that level of commitment, people flounder, they fall off, they change their mind, they go do something else. But when you've got that level of commitment, it doesn't matter what it looks like. You're going to make it work. And that's the level of commitment we've got to, to what we're doing. Um, if you're willing to do it for free, probably be all right. You know, we did that for free on the front end. So I know I love what I do. So... <laughs> Uh, but Alvin, that is so important for people to know, not just from investment, but understanding how to vet your sponsors or the people that are executing the deal. There, there's a huge element of reputation here. And people sometimes forget, like a lot of people get scared, right? They're like, oh my God, tax, uh, land, like working with the city. That Just the thought of that scares away most people. But you guys just took on that project. Like, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to change thousands of lives we're going to do this. And I think that's what really set you guys apart. And I want to kind of dig into maybe the tax exemption process because that sounds scary, right? People don't study accounting. Most people hate tax already. So they're like, oh, that sounds cool, but I ain't trying to mess with that. Or they ain't trying to go to jail because of the IRS, whatever, right? right? <laughs> so you mentioned there's two parts of the process. There's pre-dev and then there's always like the, the taxes down bond afterwards that you take over the property. When do you guys actually set up the nonprofit to actually qualify for the tax exemption process? Is it when you buy the land already? Absolutely. Then, okay, got it. So everything we're doing is under the nonprofit name. Mm -hmm. There are sometimes that there, there were a few deals back you know, last year sometime that I did not know whether they were going to be able to be affordable deals. Mm -hmm. So I contracted them in the name of our development company name, which is not Hope Housing. Mm -hmm. And so that way, again, worried about the stigma. People go, oh, look at this buyer. It's Hope Housing Foundation. Oh, they're a nonprofit. We don't want to sell to those people. So then I use my development company name because we got a development company that does all development work. And so I've contracted some of them that way. And then we do the value there and do all the pre-dev work. And then when we flip it to Hope Housing Foundation, we've created value there and we've allowed some of the participants um, to be able to, to, to make money for, what, for the work they put in on the front side. 
because we've Got created it. we did a value add just on the land mm-hmm. and so there's a tick up in bases there um and, and after that tick up in bases yes yeah and after that tick up in bases can a nonprofit just refi just like any other multifamily developer? Because you mentioned Absolutely. you can't get the money back out and give it to doing. Are you working with special lenders that only work with nonprofits or mm-hmm. it's just you're based on your relationships that you already developed? The, the only difference, people think that nonprofits can't make money. Mm. The NFL is a nonprofit. Wow. You didn't know that. Yeah. So some of the, all your hospitals are nonprofits. Do you think they don't make money? The thing that differentiates a nonprofit from a for-profit is what is hap- what happens with the profit. The only difference in running a for-profit and a nonprofit is that none of the earnings inure to the benefit of any person. That's it. That means that I will not get personally rich when this thing is worth $6 billion. I'll just get a salary. So... Yeah, we can have a gazillion dollars in the bank every year. No, we don't have to zero our accounts out every December because people think you can't have money in a nonprofit. That's all garbage. That's why they have bake sales and cake sales, and they think they can the only way they can get money through a nonprofit is for people to give them money. <laughs> Respectfully, that's not the only way. Next level strategies. Mm-hmm. You can make money and help thousands, if not millions of people at the same time. Wow, think that is incredible. The NFL is a nonprofit. Like, come on. And you know they're making so much money. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> well, after you guys get the land and refinance, you repay your investors. Is that when the tax exempt bond is actually issued or raised? Because you mentioned you're raising capital for the land and then the purchase to kind of get mm-hmm. it up there. But what mechanically happens between the, the transition from your after you get all your land entitled to actually getting the financing to build and do all the construction? Well, we know before we even look at a piece of dirt, if this is the area that we want to focus on, we know before we buy it that, yes, this is going to be suitable for 200 units. Yes, our bond uh, issuers will approve this. So we know that before we go in. So really, it's just we do now. A year ago, I was, oh, is it going to be affordable? Is it not? Eh, is it going to be affordable? Is it not? Now, I'm, it's always going to be that. Uh, we're always looking in markets above 70000 AMI anyway, area median income. So we already know that. We were already doing that. Uh, the difference is maybe you can call it workforce housing instead of affordable housing, just depending on the audience. Um, but so initially, Kent uh, Hope will take the title, will take title to the property. Um, we'll do all the pre-dev stuff. But at that time we're starting that, we have already contacted our attorneys. Uh, we already know that, again, that the issuers will not have a problem with that. So at the time, we're putting together our performance and everything for our financing. We have our attorneys talking to the issuers so that almost simultaneously, our goal is to have our bonds issued, our architectural plans already done with construction docs, and be literally just a couple of weeks away from having a permit issued when all of this stuff comes together at one time. So it's we've got multiple things going on at the same time so that, you know, the engineering's being done, all of your construction docs, your MEPs, mechanical, electrical and plumbing plans are all being done. All this is being done at the same time. The site's being de- designed and landscape plan and the swimming pool's being all of it. So at the, at the end of the day, 
the goal is within a month of of each other, we would have full building plans and everything ready to be submitted to the city. We would have bonds ready to be issued. We'd have all of that paperwork so that once we give this to the city, uh, hopefully we've got only a 45 to 60 day window for them to approve the construction docs and get us ready for a permit. And so far, that's about the way it's worked. I didn't know that's how it was gonna work uh, when we started this because I thought we could be building within three months, even though I bought a project that was already shovel ready. I'm going to just make a few changes. And those few changes cost me 13 months. But it's been the best 13 months ever because we saved about 600000 in construction. 13 months ago, I would have taken out a loan that would have had a variable interest rate with no ceiling because I didn't know what Ooh. I didn't know. You see what I mean? That's right. So, Never I didn't know, know what I didn't know. know. <laughs> uh, who knew 13 months ago that the interest rates would start to do what they're doing? Who knew? Who knew? We don't know right now in this economic environment. That's true. I mean, just touching base on that pre-dev side, that pre-development side is so important. Were, were you able to hire your current property manager in the area or work with the manager team on site? I mean, how are you finding these people to manage the projects that work in congruence with the GC and your asset manager? Good question. Um, from the construction side, you know, I've got a construction background experience and I've been in Dallas a long time. So we know a lot. And once you start delving into this arena, it's a small world. There's five or six contractors that are big enough to handle these kind of projects. And we know them all now. Um, so from that's, you know, from the engineering perspective, all the way through the guys that can pour the parking lots and do everything underneath the ground that you don't see. Um, so we had an opportunity to meet the largest guys in that market. And because I've been saying we want to do 20,000 units in five years, we really met the big ones. Uh, we met the ones that want to be a part of this. Some of these guys want to come and say, hey, man, we can do all of the horizontal work um, as an equity injection into the project. Meaning they instead of spending five million, they want to do it for, for four million, which is their cost, and and help the project out and insert their million dollar profit as equity. So now when you got people that you already work with coming to the table going, hey man, how can we be a part of this? What you're doing is so good. We really want to be a part of this. And we want to save some money on taxes. And so now when you get a whole group of professionals, engineers, architects, everybody, MEP guys, the, the mechanical contractor, everybody sees that this is something that benefits everybody. Man, this is almost a movement. That's why I said I want to have our own plant, building our own panels, our own trusses. Lastly, once we have that in place, the goal would be to go to the penal system and get some of these ex-offenders with nonviolent backgrounds and give them careers building our apartments. We're going to be doing this for six, seven years minimum to get to 20,000 plus units. So within the next 12 to 18 months, we can have our plant going and our trust plant going. Eventually, that will lead us to building our own cabinets because that's just boxes, right? And so now we've got our whole assembly line building all of our own stuff for all of our own appliances with, with labor that has been repurposed, giving people a second opportunity for housing, for better housing, for careers, for jobs. I don't want them to just work for me. Why can't they be in, uh, subcontractors? 
we train them well enough, they can literally be subcontractors, their own bosses. And that's the vision that I have for this whole organization of having a self-feeding ecosystem from an organization that can find our own land, have our own engineers architect it, engineer it, have our own uh, panel plant building the walls for it, our own trust plant building the trusses for it, our own crews doing the work for it that we've put through our training program and the guys that came out of the penal system, guys and women that came out of penal system have gotten trained. They may even want to decide to live in our apartments or may even decide that because they've now that they are giving jobs to other people that they're business owners, that they don't have to live in affordable housing. They, they don't need it anymore. That's a self-feeding ecosystem. This thing will go on long after I'm gone. And um, I'm excited about that. Man, I just love the word ecosystem because that's literally what's going through my head as you were talking about. And then you said it, and I was like, well, duh. <laughs> like, like, Alvin, this is incredible what you're doing because not only is it a self-sustaining ecosystem, but you're also doing good at the same time. And I don't want to lose, and I really want to emphasize this. You were aligning the interests of your contractors with your project. So everyone can share in the win. Not only do they get, you know, equity in the property, but then also gets gets tax exempt, you know, uh, on their equity gains in that property. Then you have folks that where you're bringing out the penal system and you are actually providing opportunities to them where they can live on the same properties that you guys are building. That is how you truly rehabilitate and give people a second chance and an opportunity to get out of the bat loop that they might be in. Correct. And I, I think that's just so beautiful, man. Like it's, it's genius. The vision that you have come up with and you're kind of executing on an everyday basis. I absolutely well, man, thank you. I'm it's, it's, you know, it's 58 years in the making. That's how old I am. Uh, <laughs> and it has literally taken 12 years of sitting here doing this every day to get to this part, but it's just tied in all the way back to my construction experience, everything and understanding how this stuff goes together and really understanding the older I get, you know, you probably heard your mom them say this, the older we get, the smarter we get. And, but also the more compassionate we get and the more we want to help people. And, um, we realize it's not about just our four and no more getting all we can, canning all we get and sitting nope. on the can and letting the rust eat the bottom of the can out. No, we don't do that. And Alvin, I think that's that's why we we started this podcast, right? Where people always talked about affordable housing is impossible to solve or so hard to solve. And I think we disagree. Like you and I have the same mindset where we're like, hey, you know what? This is just a big puzzle. And everybody that we can bring onto the podcast, including yourself and really including yourself, is it just another piece of that puzzle? Even if we don't solve this in our lifetime, we get to pass those pieces of the puzzle to the next generation and they get to carry that on. And that's how you really truly create a lasting impact there where if you just help thousands and thousands and millions of people, they're going to pay it for it. And it's inevitable that they're going to help our kids, our grandkids when we're not there anymore. And I think that's what makes me feel at peace uh, when my time comes as well. But it's just that it's really for the family at, at the end of the day, for the future generation. Man, this um, has been good, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. This is beautiful, man. Um well, I, I looked at your website, and I might be combining questions here, so Andrea might kill me, but yeah, that's I fine. ran on your website. The website, it's all being changed with my new vision, <laughs> so it, it's ugly. We all know it. I think he already answered the question about how he keeps the lights on, because it's very apparent when you're getting all these tax exemptions, and then, you know, the money sits in the bank as a responsibility, so you can have that at either for the next project 
But that's what I guess what we were trying to figure out, like, hmm, how does he make money if it's a nonprofit? And you already answered most of that. But well, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can help you even a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. I get a salary. So that's it. Yep. The organization last year, we financed. I told you we did three properties with tax exempt bonds. The total allocation of that bond issuance was about 48 million. Those three properties collectively, we paid ooh, almost 9 million. So we paid 9 million. <laughs> One of them we paid 6 million for. We refinanced it for 16 million three years later. And then we refinanced it from 16 million to 26 million last year. The other two properties were very similar. One of them we paid a million four for it. Last year we refinanced it for 7.6. One of them we paid 1.3 for it. We refinanced it for 4.4. So that's how the, the organization makes money and pays us our salaries. Just like any other syndicator property owner, we buy them low, refinance them, pull the cash flow out, renovate them, keep them going, pay us a salary. And uh, and then to get out of that rat race of fixing somebody else's problems four years ago, trying to buy something for one hundred thirty, forty thousand dollars a unit that was worth 50. We said we were going to start developing. And that's how we got into the mind space of going, OK, what does it take? And it took three years to figure it out. And then we figured it out. And then last year we executed on. Four deals. And now this year they're all coming out of pre-baked position to start cooking this first quarter. So this first quarter, we literally could close about $200 million worth of development deals. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to, to do the volume at that size, what does your team look like to support such like a massive operation? And maybe I can ask in a more tactical way, right? If someone is trying to start out, mm -hmm. how do they start building their team towards doing something like this? Is it do you recommend looking at lawyers first, accountants first? What what might that be, those tactical steps that you would recommend for someone starting out that is so passionate about this stuff? Uh, wow, that, that that's such a good question because I'm such a relationship person that I, I do my relationships differently. Um, I believe, I just believe that if you got your head down and you know that you're on the right path and you know you're doing the right thing, that if you go as fast as you can, that your draft will pull the people you need behind you to help support that mission. The other side of that coin, if you'll be bold enough and get out of your fear, I was so afraid to even talk about what I did, that if you'll be bold enough and, and get out of your fear zone and get into a place of uncomfortability, but vulnerability and transparency, Somebody will hear you. And if you're talking about something and it's real, those people will hear you. It'll resonate with them. And I've had more people come out of the blue, just like that guy said, hey, man, we want to do this work and don't pay us. Just contribute it to equity. It's part of your capital stack. My architects, my engineers, all of those people came to me that way. I didn't find them. They found me. The mission, it, the, they say the riches are in the niches. My, my word that I woke up with about a month ago around the same time was my niches or in my mission. And when I got back to being, hey, I'm a straight affordable housing guy. My phone started ringing off the hook. 
hey, I want need some money. You got some investments. We got investors for you. Like, man, I've been freaking shaking trees trying to make the money fall out. But when I got back to what we were supposed to be doing, my phone started ringing. So you pick that up however you want. There's a lot said in that. No, I, I picked it up. And I think sometimes your vibe attracts your tribe, right? And I think it does, people, absolutely. Yeah. When, you, when you talk about it the way you do, Alvin, people gravitate towards it because they know you're genuine, right? People always know if you are giving them, but with the expectation to return. Right. That's people will see through that all the time. Right. You are just a pure giver just by the sheer notion of you coming onto this podcast and being so transparent with the world. Some people might have said, I know all these secrets. It took me that many years to do it. I'm going to keep that to myself. You just came on and said, let me share this with the world. Let me help as many people as possible because it will come back to you tenfold. It's in, it's inevitable. It will. And I, I just believe somebody's watching this video whenever it comes out. They know somebody with 100 million. Yeah. They know somebody with 50, 10, five, or five gazillion. They know somebody. <laughs> Absolutely. And they're going to refer them right over to you. That's right. Uh, so, so, Alvin, I mean, we just talked about this, like building the massive amount of scale. Like, why do you think affordable housing is so hard to solve? Because I, and, and I recognize how big of a question this is, right? There's like a yeah, lot of shortage of supply. But what do you think is like the top one to three, two priorities that you're solving because you talked about like you want to create a whole ecosystem to, um, you know, have your own trust plan, your own um, insulated panel uh, plant. But if you were able to solve this problem for your generation, like what is the top one or two next problems that's going to make us the biggest dent that you think the next generation to, should focus on or this generation? Oh, well, I see a couple of things wrong with the system. But I think one of the biggest issues is it costs money to provide anything, right? I mean, let's just face it. The problem we're solving is for middle America, the everyday guy, the middle of the road, affordable housing. There's still a road that nobody's touched yet. How do you provide housing to the people that make twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year? Good, clean, safe, adequate sanitary housing. I don't have an answer for that. Uh, I know what it takes to build it. It has to be sustainable. It has to be, um, it has to be thought about with, with how can we make this. When I say sustainable, I'm think I'm talking about from the AC systems down to the water systems to where it you know really really efficient. Uh, but that costs money. And so the only way that that's going to happen, they're going to have to be more incentives from, I hate to say it because I don't like big government, but nobody's going to just give the money away. So a lot of those deals are being done with 9% um, tax credits. And so what that is, that, that's a federal program where uh, the federal government allows states to issue tax credits based on their uh, population size. And based on that population, each state gets so many dollars that they can use for tax credits for affordable housing. And so those are competitive. Um, you have developers that compete to get those credits. And so basically what those credits do is they, you know, if it, let's, let's say that this $10 million project where I can get $1,000 a month, 
um, in rent, it, it costs $10 million to build it. Well, and the area median income is 100000 Well, just because we moved to the other side of the tracks, it still costs $10 million to build it. The rents are not $1,000 a month based on the area median income. Based on that neighborhood, the area median income will probably only bring me $500 a month in rents. So how... So that means my building's only worth five million, but it still costs ten million to build it. So what? Do, where does that other five million dollars come from to to allow this building to be built and provide lower rents? It comes from a federal tax credit program that that the states issue, and this developer competitively won that five million dollars of tax credits. That means that they will go out to the market and sell those credits to an Amazon, to a Coke companies, to a Coca-Cola or somebody like that, they will buy that those credits for 90 cents on a dollar to a dollar 10, depending on the market. So they may get four, four and a half million for that $5 million worth of paper, or they may get 6 million for that $5 million worth of paper. But whatever they get, it closes that gap. So now that $5 million that they can only generate because the rents are $500 a month, now they got the other $5 million from those tax credits. And now they can build that $10 million building. But in exchange for those credits, they have to provide housing at certain income brackets to make that tax efficient for the person that bought those credits. Yeah, so that's how that's, that's how that's changed. That's how that's done, but that's not done near enough. Um, you know, in... That's not done near enough. I'll just say it that way. In affordable housing, it's called LIHTC properties. Uh, those right. are technically tax credit properties that these properties get converted into um, for that, what Alvin mentioned, that minimum set aside. So as developers, some developers do that bond play where they set aside a certain percentage of that equity. Uh, they said they said it's at a certain percentage of the property to make a certain amount of money, like 20% of the units. And um, it's just incredible, like what can happen if we partner with a nonprofit as market rate apartment investors. And if we profit with a nonprofit to be able to convert these units to affordable so we can work with people like Alvin. I mean, the benefits are incredible. I wonder what's next for, Al for Alvin. <laughs> What is next for you? Just more developments. Um, um, and so now, oh, Ken asks, what does our team look like? Man, we got five people in my office. <laughs> we used to have 40 people in here running around because we had the management company and all of that. And I quickly realized that I did not want to manage people. I just wanted to manage a process and, and have key people that run the process that we work closely together. So what's next for me is really just further developing this ecosystem, this system, because now that we have a system of identifying the land based on the AMI, we have a system of financing it based on the tax exempt bonds. Now we have a system of, of there's a software that we got. I can find any track of land anywhere in America, United States. Yeah, America. They can pull it up by the code in that county. It'll tell me what all the set aside setbacks are for that. And my land planner can literally within 15 minutes take an acre or 30 acres and have a land plan designed around that piece of dirt anywhere. 
parking lots, adequate parking, podium buildings, whatever we want. So now we've got a way of design, finding the land, financing it, designing it, engineering it. Just need to further develop this out to where all of these things can symbiotically just go from state, you know, stage to stage to stage and uh, continue to put the right people in place and watch it work. And that is like letting the engine work on its own, right? Yeah. Like that is that is so beautiful. And Alvin, this has been an amazing conversation. Like we have learned so much. And honestly, we hope we can bring you back like as maybe Anytime. we can follow you along along one of your projects so people can actually see the different stages and we can ask like Alvin, what's going on at this stage now? So again, bringing more transparency, pulling back the curtains, letting people know what does that actually entail so it look, feels less scary. So Alvin, where can people get in touch with you and just learn more about your foundation? Awesome. Well, uh, hopehousingfoundation.org is the website for the foundation. And uh, depending on when you look at the website, it may not look good, but it's changing. And um, and then it may look great, but it's still changing. Uh, and, uh, and then all of my socials, Alvin Hope Johnson. And uh, I'd love to come back. We will have this quarter, like I said, at least two of our deals closed. Uh, one of them will be 50 million. Um, it's actually 54 million in Wisconsin. We've got a, a redevelopment deal in, in Louisiana that will be about 44 million. It's 450 units. We paid $4 million for that deal. Uh, so we're refinancing it at 44 million. We've already put a bunch of money into it, but now we're going to put another 10 million in it. So that'll be going on. And then we've got the deal in Princeton, Texas, that'll close up. We're just waiting on a permit. I may get a call today or tomorrow for a permit. And once that is done, we'll either build 200 or 400 units there. So that could be either be 54 million or 110 million. And I'll know that within about two weeks, which execution we're going to go. So 110, 50 and 50, man, almost 210 million could be this quarter. So by June, uh, let's tap back in because we will have uh, job site cameras going up on all of these. Uh, running 24 hours, so you'll be able to see the stages of of these these buildings coming up out of the ground. It's gonna be amazing. I'm excited. That is so cool. I'm so yeah. jazzed up about it, man. Let's yeah. let's definitely have you come back on because then we can go through each deal one by one. And yes. again, you missed it. Find a process. People would be like, "Wow, this is cool." How do I become a part of this? Because now I actually know what's going on instead of some yes. other multifamily projects where people invest in and they just never hear back from people until they just get a deposit in a bank account. This way they can feel like they're part of the journey. And I think that is going to be so fun to kind of watch it evolve. So there really will be. All right, Alvin, this has been awesome. Andrea, anything else to add from your side? I'm just blessed to be in your presence. Both of you guys, seriously, just because of your commitment to be able to provide knowledge to people who just started out and they don't know anything, how they can get into the space and be able to give back on and reap the benefits from all sides. I, I, I think I'm just blessed to be in your presence. Thank you guys. That's all I have to add. All right. Awesome. Thank you again, Alvin. We'll talk to you soon, man. Thank you all so much. And let me show you, uh, I told you in the beginning, I was a dreamer. So look at my, look at my hoodie. Look at my hoodie. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. I love it. Dream on. I love He's it. ready to walk in any street and get money <laughs> to fund the passion, make the dream happen. That's it. <laughs>
I, I appreciate y'all so much. Talk to you soon.